Hello, I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, part of the Scripture Central team to talk today about the book of Hebrews. It's my favorite epistle in the second half of the New Testament. I love this book because it talks about the temple. The whole book of Hebrews is generally speaking the promise of the temple and the price of the temple. Now, we'll divide it into many different sorts and, and look at it in different ways. But this book is very unique amongst the epistles. It's not the same as the others. Chronologically, you can see on my chart here that Paul probably wrote it when he was in prison in Caesarea. After his third mission, before he is in prison in Rome, he spends two years in Caesarea. But we aren't positive. People often debate the authorship of this book. But Eusebius, our church historian who's writing from 260 AD to 339 AD, Eusebius said that the epistle the Hebrews was written for Hebrews, meaning for Jews, Jewish converts, in their own language, translated by Luke and published for Greek readers. Hence, in the Greek version of this epistle, we find the same stylistic color as in Acts. Because remember, Luke wrote Acts, and then he's Paul's companion, and he supposedly translated this from Hebrew into Greek. Now, it says his own tongue. Most Jews were not speaking Hebrew at this time, but because Paul was a scholar, he probably knew it. Most Jews were speaking Aramaic, the language of the Babylonians that they still have as their mother tongue. Here's another interesting statement on the book of Hebrews by my favorite Catholic scholar, Raymond Brown, in his introduction to the New Testament. By all standards, this is one of the most impressive works in the New Testament. It is written in quality Greek and passionately appreciative of Christ. Christ is the center of this, Jesus as the Messiah. And the whole book takes all these things about the Judaic traditions and the law of Moses and so shows how the Savior is better than any of them. There's three or four reasons why I believe this book was written by Paul, or at least in some form of it was written by Paul, um, because it may have been edited, it may have been changed, it may have been dictated and, or given an outline. But the reason why I do is because he mentions Timothy, he mentions he's in bonds, he quotes the same LXX translations that the other letters of Paul does. And interestingly, he also quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, as he does in two other epistles. Most people don't have the book of Habakkuk memorized. They don't even have that scroll. Very few synagogues had scrolls beyond the Torah and the Psalms. And if you were a large city, you may have had the scroll of Isaiah. But the minor prophets were very hard to come by. And so if you had those memorized, you had probably been taught by one of the great masters in one of the great synagogues in Jerusalem. Another reason why I think Paul wrote this, um, because he repeats this beloved scripture that he has memorized and he's repeating it over word. You know, it's one of his favorite scriptures. We see it repeatedly. Another thing that's interesting about the book of Hebrews is that it fulfills the law of Moses. Just as Leviticus announced the Mosaic system, remember Leviticus is the priesthood manual of the Old Testament, Hebrews explains it. I love this, and it's quite consistent, actually, with what Nephi also explains about the law of Moses. In the book of Hebrews, it describes how the gospel is growing out of the context of the Levitical order, out of the temple ordinances and the Levitical soil. One of the, um, our past BYU professors, Joseph F. McConkie, stated, Among the New Testament books, Romans is the most abused, Revelations is the most misunderstood." and Hebrews is the most neglected. So I hope to overcome that. I'm thrilled we have two whole weeks on the book of Hebrews. 
It is the most Christ-centered book among all of the Pauline epistles, and I'm excited to dive into it with you. There's one more reason why I think this was written by Paul, and that has to do with statistical analysis of authorship. Do you remember the Federalist Papers were trying to be analyzed? Who actually wrote them? And when people try to say, who wrote Shakespeare? And now when we go to courts of law, they try to determine, is this text accurate or is it plagiarized? All of these now are done statistically through computerized studies. A few decades ago, they used to call it word prints. But this whole idea of stylometry, this idea that the textual words are fit into contextual analysis, all of this very, very esoteric studies have been able to be shown even through translated works. And the stylometry of the book of Hebrews shows it to be Pauline. Let's dive in now with chapters one to three. They talk about the superiority of God's son. The author is constantly comparing the Old Testament law with God's son. The book of Hebrews does not start like Paul's other letters. Instead, chapter one, verse one through four, is this beautiful resume of our Savior. He talks about being an heir of all things. He made the worlds. He's the brightness of God's glory. He's the express image of God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He purged our sins. And he is so much better than the angels. So this beautiful resume sort of summarizes the Gospels. He's taking all the things we know about the resurrected Lord and putting them together in these first four verses. One other thing that is fascinating about the book of Hebrews is if he is writing to his own people, he's writing to people that understand the books that we refer to as the Old Testament, but they had more. It was not a small canon like we have now for the Old Testament. It was much larger. We find so many citations from the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 1, look at this. We have in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 12, verse 13. He's quoting the Psalms and Samuel and Deuteronomy. (laughs) And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, verse 12, verse 13, two times he quotes Isaiah and the Psalms. Hebrews chapter 3, we're quoting Numbers and the Psalms. You know, this book is saturated. This author really knew the law. He really knew the Old Testament writings. And I think Paul was one of the most educated and academically trained writers in the New Testament we had. And I think he knew them better than all the others. And hence, we get an outpouring of scriptural connotations here. But let's start back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 in the NIV. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. But in these last days, meaning now, meaning Paul's day, you know, he's writing in the present tense, he has spoken to us by his son. Verse three, the son is the radiance of the father, the glory, the exact representation of his being. Now, this is an interesting word. That was the NIV translation. But as we look into this in Greek, it says he is properly. And the word first meant that he was engraven. You know, it's an image made by engraving tools. But figuratively, it means he has the likeness, his inner character. Now, if you look at other translations, uh, this express image is translated as he is stamped, you know, as a a photocopy. But I like the RSV. His nature is the exact same. Or in the CSV, is like him in every way. So it's not necessarily saying they have to be a, a photocopy. 
but they share the same things. The Son and the Father share much. In verse 6, we have a Joseph Smith translation, so I'd like to read it to you that way. Let all the angels of God worship him who maketh his ministerings as the flame of fire. And the angels, he said, angels are ministering spirits. This is exactly what we believe in our dispensation, thanks to the JST changes there. Verse 8 and 9 in the NEB translation read, But unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever. And skipping down a little bit, it reads, Thou hast loved righteousness, and therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. And skipping down to verse 9, Above fellows by anointing with the oil of exaltation. And do you remember that the word Messiah, Mashiach, is anointed, the anointed one, and that's also the word for Christ. And so he's saying, above the angels, above the prophets, we have one who is anointed by God. And we believe that he is above the angels, he is above the prophets, and he's trying to show that in these beautiful verses, that this anointing is of gladness. It's also significant, I think, as we think about the anointing, that Christ became the anointed one by going through his atoning sacrifice in Gethsemane and on the cross. And the word Gethsemane means the olive press, the place where they make that crushing, heavy, heavy weights to make the oil. That first drop that comes out was the first pressing taken to the temple to use to anoint others to become holy. And all of them are just types of our Savior. And we can become holy as we come unto Christ and are anointed to share his anointing. But he is the anointed one. Chapter 2 in Hebrews, verse 1 to 9, all talks about the role of Christ in salvation. Now, remember, we talked about this in the Old Testament a couple years ago. The early um, children of Israel used the temple and the focus on the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice was their whole focus of their writing and their thoughts, and everything was focused on the temple. But later Israelites, especially as they come back from the Babylonian exile, they are focused on the law. The law can save us. And if we can add to our law and live it entirely, we will not lose God's favor. So they added the oral laws and they um, diminished the influence of the written 613 and emphasized the 10,000 um, extra traditions of the Jews. And so he's now trying to show that we're going back to the original. It's back to the temple. And the temple was only a sign, a pattern of our Savior. I'll read in verse 1 from the NIV of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And then he goes into verse 2 by saying, if you're not going to heed the angel, don't go back to the Old Testament angels. You know, you shouldn't give more attention to the angel than you do to Christ. Christ is the anointed one. And you know, he's using that word for wordplay. Moving on to verse 4, he says, God hath also bearing them witnesses, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Now, I have to ask, what witnesses and wonders do you see of him? Paul asks the early Christians, um, are you seeing God in your world? We read about him in the Old Testament. Do you see him now? And I think that's a wonderful question to ask ourselves as well. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 also refer to Christ's role. Quote, Thou hast put all things in subjection under thy feet, 
Remember the word subjection is voluntary cooperation <laughs> for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So our Savior's role is to taste death for every man. He has died for all so that, as Isaiah said, O death, where is thy sting? There will be no end of life, immortality. All will be able to receive the tree of life. All will be able to go back to the Garden of Eden and partake of the tree of life without our sins and live forever. And those who want to be exalted need to repent and come unto Christ. But every human will be able to live again. Chapter 2, verse 15 reads that he will deliver them who through fear of death were subject to bondage. Now, sometimes bondage is a fear. It can entrap us. We become paralyzed by fear. But he's asking us to remember that Christ, just step back, take a galactic view. All things are going to be made right and whole through our Savior. Verse 10 goes back to the suffering servant mentality of our Savior. It reads, For it became him, skipping down a little bit, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this is so fascinating. We don't ever seek suffering. We don't ask God for trials. He gives them to us. He tailor makes them. And part of them are just part of life. But this is so significant that he had to suffer in order to become perfect. He had to bear the sins of all. He had to receive the the thrashings and the crucifixion. He had to go through this suffering in order to be perfected. He also became the great high priest. This is chapter 2, verse 17. In all things it behaved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest to make reconciliation for the people of God. Now, that word reconciliation is sometimes translated as propitiation, and it's for the sins of the people in the New King James Version. But the high priest, remember, once a year would offer the um, the Day of Atonement in the early fall, the heifer, and have the scapegoats, and have the blood sprinkled on the altar and on the veil. And finally, after all the ritual that was involved in Leviticus chapter 16, would be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, enter into the throne of God and enter into the mercy seat. He's saying it wasn't the high priest. Christ is the great high priest. It was Christ's blood that was representative of this. It it wasn't this one man doing things. It was representing our Savior. Verse 18 continues on with the suffering servant mentality. In that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. I am so grateful that we believe in a God who has descended before low all things that he can always understand me. And then in chapter three, he talks about Christ as an apostle, as well as a high priest. This is interesting. We usually don't use the word apostle for our savior. But he says in verse one of chapter three, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And so we look at what does this mean by an apostle? Well, in Greek, as we mentioned before, apostolos is one sent. It's a messenger, it's an envoy, a delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way. It's especially a man sent out by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. All this comes from the Strong's Concordance. So Paul is using these beautiful temple imageries and these beautiful imageries from the gospel to say, Christ is the high priest. Christ is the greatest apostle, but his apostolic calling came from the Father and the others came from the Son. 
In verse 3, he talks about Jesus and Moses. He says, chapter 3, verse 3, this man, he's referring to Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. You know, in the ancient world, uh, Moses was their greatest of all the prophets. And he's saying, no, Moses was directed by Jehovah and Jesus was Jehovah. It's a beautiful image here. He that buildeth all things is God. That is Jehovah. That is Jesus in the flesh. That's verse four. In verse five, he goes on and talks about this role of the apostle being a servant. And I want to remind you that the word servant is that we are waiting on God. And Moses was a servant. And as we wait on God, we are not passive. We are actively meeting all of his needs. We're asking, what would you like next? What would you like next? And what would you like for dessert? (laughs) This is our role as servants of God. Verse six then goes on to the house of God. Christ as the son over his own house, whose house are we? So he's using the church as the house, as disciples. If we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the faith. This is so important. We cannot serve God unless we honor him with our faith. We have got to be receiving forgiveness in order to be cleansed by him. And we can't work for him unless we're cleansed. It's so important that we receive his atoning sacrifice in order to work for him. But all can come unto him and receive that grace. Continuing on in chapter three, clear down to verse 12. And actually, I'm going to do 12 all the way down to 17. He says, take heed and then skipping ahead, harden not your hearts. And he goes back to this beautiful imagery, as in the day of provocation with them that have sinned. Okay, the day of provocation goes back to Moses when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Remember, this is just a month or so out. It's 50 days out from Passover. They get back to Sinai and Moses says, let's go back. Jesus has, or Jehovah asked them to bring the children of Israel back and have them ascend the mount and enter into his presence. And he says, they say, no, Moses, you know, they built the golden calf. They, they weren't ready for the higher law. Those were the days of provocation. They provoked God. And Paul is saying, we are back to this holy mountain. We are back to the days when Christ is asking us to enter again in his presence. He wants us to have the higher ordinances, the higher law to once again receive of his greatest loves and his greatest gifts. And let us not provoke him again. He continues on in these same verses of 17 to 19, with whom he was grieved 40 years because of unbelief. The clear statement here in Hebrews is that it was not necessary to walk in the wilderness 40 years. They had to walk for 40 years because they had provoked God. It was their punishment. It was to kill off that entire generation. So only the children were allowed to go into the promised land. Um, Let us not spend years and years wandering in the wilderness. Let's come unto Christ and let's, let's receive his higher law and honor our temple covenants. Chapter four says in the NIV, verse one, since the promise of entering into his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of us of you be found to have fallen short of it. Well, what does entering into his rest mean? We are so blessed in the restoration to have Joseph speak on this in many, many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Actually, I shouldn't say Joseph speak on this. Joseph recorded divine revelation. One of those is section 84, verse 24, where it says, the Lord's rest is the fullness of his glory. So he's saying back in chapter four, verse one, 
the promise of having God's full glory still stands. You know, he's, he's saying it's time to climb the mountain. It's time to enter into the higher law. The next three chapters are also filled with a lot of Old Testament citations. I gave you that huge list from the first cha three chapters. They're a little bit less here. He's got three Old Testament sections um, in chapter four, two in chapter five, and one in chapter six. Um, but they're again from Psalms and Genesis and Proverbs, uh, verse three, four, and seven um, in chapter four. Anyway, I've got them all in my handout, my notes. It's, it's fascinating to see how well he knows his scriptures. Let's move on now to verses two and three in chapter four. There's a small Joseph Smith translation where he changes it. He says, for unto us was the gospel preached. Joseph changes that. He says, for unto us was rest preached. Now, this is very interesting to see Joseph already using this definition for the rest of the Lord in 1832 when he's making these changes. But he has received section 84 shortly after this um, and he's and he's already understanding what the rest of the Lord meant. So he's saying, God is trying to have you enter into his presence. That's what the Joseph Smith translation change means. And continuing on in verse three, for we who have believed do enter into rest. That is a powerful verse. And then in verse four, we have another Joseph Smith translation. He says, in this place again, and he's quoting Psalms 95, verse 11 and 7 and 8, he says, in this place again, he's, the book of Psalms, if they, and then Joseph Smith ha adds in the Joseph Smith translation, harden not their hearts, they shall enter into my rest. Joseph is always clear to say it's not a passive gift. It's not you're either elect or you're damned, as Augustine and Calvin taught and which was part of the Puritan translation of the King James Version of the Bible. It is only those who have soft and meek and humble hearts who come unto Christ. Continuing on in chapter 4, verse 8 in the NIV. And the reason why I want to use the NIV is because the King James says Jesus. But remember, Jesus is Joshua, Joshua in Greek. So the NIV translation says, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would have spoken later about another day. So he's going through the Old Testament scripture saying, we know there's another one because it was promised. Paul's also using the Jewish argument, the way that they discuss things, the way that they would go and debate their scriptures. He's using the same techniques that he had learned as a Pharisee in the synagogue here in this letter. Moving on now to verse 10 of chapter four. In the BSB, it reads, whoever enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did. This is so powerful. We have to completely submit our will to God's will. But I also want to add a different dimension to this verse. We are told that the Sabbath is to be a day of rest. But once you start getting a church calling, it's hardly a day of rest, especially if you're, you're the primary president or something. You know, it's going to take a full day of preparation and service. If you're the bishop or something, it is not a day of quiet nap time. So what we can do to add this definition of rest, rest is entering into the presence of the Lord. It's receiving of the Lord's fullness. It's doing his will. So if our Sabbaths are a day of rest, our Sabbaths are entering into God's presence. Our Sabbaths are doing his will. Our Sabbaths are serving him. So instead of saying, is this something I should be doing on the Sabbath or not? Ask is this God's work? And if it's not God's work, don't do it. The Sabbath is a day where we don't do our own will. It's a day we do the Lord's will according to 
the restoration's definition of this verse here in chapter 4, verse 10. Verse 11 continues on, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. You know, whether you're a missionary, whether you're a child learning to pray, whether you're going to the temple, whether you're serving someone else, let us serve God at all times, in all places, no matter if we're having to earn our money another way or get our education another way, we can serve God with everything we say and do. He goes back to the idea of Jesus as the great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. And he goes on with the idea of this great sacrifice because it was the high priest who took the sins of the children of Israel upon him, offers them on the altar, sprinkles the blood, and is allowed to then represent uh, the the promised Messiah in the future. He's a type of that, a, a precursor. It says in the NIV, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then skipping down to verse 16, again in the NIV, let us then approach God's throne the, of grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is such a powerful message. You know, come to Christ, return to him, repent, not just every day, but every time we need to turn around, every time we get self-centered or selfish, return to Christ. He has made a sacrifice for us. He has already done it. Please apply his atoning sacrifice in your life through repentance. Verse 15 in the NIV reads, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That is powerful. Then chapter five continues on with this high priest theme. I'll read verse one from the BSB. Every high priest is appointed from among men to represent them in matters relating to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is powerful. And this early Christian artwork that I have on my slide shows God's hand coming down through the heavens to an altar where Melchizedek and Abel are offering sacrifice. It's all temple, temple, temple. This is a temple text. How do we enter the temple and what is required? Read the book of Hebrews with that in mind. Chapter 5, verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself unless he must be called by God as Aaron was. You know, this is used often in the restoration that when we receive God's power and authority in our lives, it's not because we've gone to school. It's not because we get authority from the Bible. It's not even because we get authority from Peter. It is because we get authority from Christ. The keys are passed down through God's anointed ones. Continuing on in verse four, it reads, Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but he was called by the one who said, and then in verse seven through nine, I'll read in the BSB. During the days of Jesus' earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He was a son and he learned obedience from what he suffered, having been made perfect. You know, he's repeating this from his earlier times. This message is consistent throughout the Pauline epistles. That's another reason why I see this as Paul. We see the same themes there that we saw back in the pastoral epistles. 
Continuing on to chapter 5, verse 9 in the NIV, he became the source of eternal salvation and all who obey him. He not only died for us, but he lives for us and he was resurrected for us. Verse 12, by this time, you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you. I'm reading from the NIV, this elementary truths of the gospel of this word again. You need milk, not solid food. I love this analogy. He says, I want to teach you with meat. And yet you are still back like a babe needing milk from your mother. You should be the ones who are teaching the gospel. You're the ones who have the law of Moses before. You're the Jewish converts. Why aren't you ready for the meat of the gospel? But in the real word is solid food. You know, he's just using this analogy of a nursing baby and a child who grows up. He's saying, saints, come. I, I want you to receive more. Chapter 6, verse 1 has an important Joseph Smith translation change. It says, therefore, not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So without it, he's saying, I've already talked about faith and who Christ is. Now I want to talk about how you can receive, how you can receive his perfecting grace. And he's saying, I now want you to give, give you the temple promises, the promises of living with God again, of being like the high priest, being washed and anointed and clothed, and then going into the holy place and, and partaking of these sacred ordinances so that you can go to the veil, which represents Christ. We'll learn about that in chapter nine next week and enter into his presence. Moving on now to chapter six, verse four in the JST, he adds, for he hath made it impossible, and then going back to King James, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, moving on to verse six, if they should fall away, Joseph Smith adds here, to be renewed again unto repentance. They're not able to repent. They've fallen. The King James again says, seeing that they crucify unto themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And then finishing up with verse nine in the KJV, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, the things that accompany salvation. He is referring in these few verses to those who have, uh, who are sons of perdition. Very few people call, fall into that category. He's saying, I think more of you. You are going to survive. But that verse six area, you know, the King James sounds as if, once you've fallen, you can't repent. And the Joseph Smith translation tries to change that. And then Joseph spoke on this, as we discussed earlier, that there are very few who have actually had their ordinances and, and do this. I'll just cite again from the discourse of April 7th, 1844. So general conference, we usually refer to this as the King Follett's discourse. Joseph said, all sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost. And after a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens were opened to him, meaning he has seen the Lord. He has received higher ordinances um, that would seal his calling and election permanently. That's who Joseph defines there. Moving now to chapter 6, verse 19 in the NIV, we have this hope as an anchor of our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So what's the inner sanctuary behind the curtain? He's talking about the temple. Go back to the Old Testament temple. The curtain is the veil. It's between the holy place and the holiest place or the holy of holies. 
That curtain is the veil. Now, it was a curtain during Paul's day and age, but in Solomon's temple, it was made out of wood. It separated the two with the sliding, sliding wood doors. Um, but he's saying, I want you to enter into that sanctuary. I want you to go through the veil and enter into the presence of the Lord. And he's begging the saints. He says, I want this to be your anchor. I want this to be a firm assurance. Go through the veil and see the Lord and continue to live and hold on to your covenants because your covenants are to bring you to Christ. It's the covenant path is the path to Christ. It's the way back to entering into his presence. Verse 20, continuing on in the NIV, our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He's entered through the veil. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, remember back in the Old Testament, we only have a couple of verses on Melchizedek. We have a lot more in the Joseph Smith translation of um, Genesis chapter 14, I think it is. But in the book of Hebrews, we have even more. The place you want to learn about Melchizedek, and remember, as I talked about in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is two Hebrew words together, king of righteousness. It may be a title. And remember, he was the king of Salem, the king of peace. So he has these titles that we use. Remember, there's no vowels. It's MLK, Melech. It's all over the Old Testament. MLK means king in Hebrew and in English, if you know who MLK is. And so you have to wait till next week when we got to talk more about Melchizedek and who he is and how that typifies of Christ. But remember at Christ's passing, the veil of the temple was rent. And as we go back to the Gospels and look at that, many people have seen that symbolically as the entrance from the holy place into the Holy of Holies is now open. The ability now to enter into the presence of God is actually there. But you can also look at it, according to the book of Hebrews, that our forerunner has entered into our behalf. It is Jesus who has gone back to the Father without sins. He has made the way. The way is the way back to the tree of life, the way back to enter into the presence of God, the way through the ancient um, temple with our washings and our anointings and our clothing, the high priest then offering sacrifices and praying at the altar is able to partake of the fruit and enter it. It's just a beautiful um, archaeological um, symbol, symbolic walk back to the presence of the Lord as we look at the ancient world. And this letter is written to those who understood that priestly walk, that walk of the priesthood, to go back into the presence of the Lord. And I tie it to the Lord's death as well. I hope that you'll continue on in your book, Study of Hebrews. And if you can, go to the temple this week and see how the book of Hebrews ties in to our teachings on the promise of the temple and the price of the temple. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.